I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to the show. I am your host for this episode, Dan, and I am very pleased to bring today's guest to us to talk about a whole lot of deep stuff when it comes to uh, abuse and how our court systems and our and our foster care system work to, to help children and so much going on. Today, I'm joined by an attorney out of Berrien County, Michigan, out of practices out of, out of Benton Harbor, and she covers, she said a minute ago, all of Southwest Michigan and beyond, uh, Elizabeth McCree. Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I was introduced to you through Deborah Hackworth, our interim executive director. Uh, she saw an article about you in the Benton Harbor newspaper and said, Hey, we need to talk to Beth. And so I'm talking to you. So that's, that's the genesis of it. But if you would share a little bit with our listeners, uh, who, who you are, what you do, and then we'll dive deeper into what this means to be a guardian, guardian ad litem, uh, if you would. Absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in Benton Harbor. Um, I, was really sparked into the work of violence against women and children in high school. Um, you know, Benton Harbor sits on I-94, and during the years that I grew up, there was a lot of uh, things being taken back and forth over 94, a lot of it illegal stuff. And when I was in high school, there was a very small article in the paper about some girls who had been at the high school who they found out um, had essentially been trafficked. You know, they weren't using that language then. This is back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. But, you know, they had been taken from other places and they were in this house in Benton Harbor and they had started to go to the, to the high school. And to be honest with you, that is around the same time that I started watching Law & Order SVU. And so I had always, since the age of like 10, that I wanted to be a lawyer. So I started to shape at that point that I was going to become a federal prosecutor and I was going to handle these trafficking cases. And, you know, I was going to be like kicking in doors with Olivia Benson and, you know, saving girls and doing all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was my initial kind of foray into the field. So I um, graduated from high school and I went down to Spelman College in Atlanta, which is an all-female HBCU in Atlanta. And while I was there, I met a woman who was working as an administrative assistant at a nonprofit in the Fulton County Juvenile Courthouse. And uh, so I started doing work with the nonprofit. And one of the parts of their nonprofit is, um, I think it's still called this, they changed the name of the nonprofit, but I think the house is still called Angela's House. 
and Angela's house is a home for girls who have been trafficked into Atlanta. And Atlanta is unfortunately a huge hub for human trafficking from all around the world. So I had the opportunity to be able to volunteer with those girls, serve as a mentor to them, go with them to court. I served as a CASA volunteer for some of the girls, and that was all during undergrad. And it really opened my mind to the multiple layers that, you know, when this happens to young ladies, they could have a delinquency case, they have issues with school, they have to testify against their abusers. Um, you know, so I was involved in a lot of those cases. You know, I was actually with a young lady in the courtroom next to the courtroom um, where Brian Nichols was being tried. And the next day was the day that he, you know, did what he did in the courthouse and actually killed a judge and a court reporter. We were, I, I had looked into the courtroom that day and we were in the courtroom next to it doing a walkthrough for her testimony on her case that was coming up the next week. And, you know, so it, I, even after all those experiences, I was like, okay, I still want to get into this kind of work. Um, and so I went to law school after I graduated undergrad and um, the first summer of law school, I did a internship with the public defender in DeKalb County, Georgia with juveniles. And then the second um, year between second and third year of law school, I interned in Cobb County with the Violence Against Women and Children Division in the prosecutor's office. So that whole summer I dealt with um, child molestation cases, sexual assault cases, um, prosecuting those cases, working directly with victims. After I graduated from law school, I started in criminal defense. Uh, the next year I went to the Clayton County Prosecutor's Office uh, where I did a lot of the violence against women and children type cases. And uh, I ended up practicing criminal law both on both sides in Georgia for about five years before I moved back to Michigan. When I moved back to Michigan, I took a job in Muskegon um, where I first was introduced to the child protection cases or the foster care cases. And I was a prosecutor representing the Department of Health and Human Services at that time. Um, when I left that job and came back to Benton Harbor in 2015 and opened my firm, I got connected with Judge Dobrich in Cass County. And that's when I started to represent some parents. And then when she found out some of my history, I was a special education teacher while I was in law school. And she knew some of the work I'd done with children she started assigning me as a guardian ad litem. And, um, you know, I had done pretty much every other job as an, as an attorney in the courtroom, but to represent the kids, it's, it's where I'm supposed to be. So after these 12 years of practicing and all these different roles and what I originally thought I'd be doing, you know, taking down doors, <laughs> um, <laughs> it really more is representing these young people. That's really the biggest part. It's 50% now of my practice. And it's been, um, it's a vocation. I know that that's where, this is where I'm supposed to be. So Beth, if you would uh, explain real quick, what a guardian ad litem, what does that mean? So um, I'm the lawyer for the children in these cases. The parents have lawyers and I'm the lawyer that is to represent the kids. And that's a twofold job. The first part of it is to let the court know what the child wants. Um, you know, obviously I represent, I've had babies that are two days old that I've visited in the NICU. Um, obviously they can't say what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, but older children can say, I want to be with my mom. I want to be with my dad. I don't want to be with my mom or I don't want to be with my dad. I'm afraid of one of them. Um, so that's the first job is to let the court know what the child wants. The second part is to let the court know what's, what I believe to be in the best interest of the child. 
which may not always be what they want. <laughs> sure, yeah. And my clients know when I first didn't talk with them and we talk about what a lawyer is and what my job is, I let them know, you know, I'm going to tell the court exactly what it is that you want. But if, you know, sometimes I may tell them what I think you need and it may not be the same thing. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said, you know, sometimes a teenager in the middle of a experience might ask for their mom's house because she lets them get away with stuff or dad because he lets them have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And so like knowing what's best for them isn't always what they want. That has to be a tough position to be in. Yeah. Um, so how, so if that's what a guardian ad litem is, at litem is, how is that financed? If you're representing kids, I mean, services cost money and that's okay. And attorneys, you know, warrant money and warrant their, their service fees. How do you, how do you get paid? So I get paid through the uh, county. There's okay. money available through the county to represent parents and to represent children. So okay. um, I build a county for each hearing. Um, I build a county for up to four hours per review hearing um, of visiting and spending time with the child. That's um, very high for that's for Cass County. That's not always like that in the state. Other counties, each county in Michigan does it differently. Uh, I definitely don't get paid what I'm worth, but <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I also do appeals as well. A lot of guardian ad litems don't do appeals. And that's, it's crazy because there's a lot of cases that have gone up to the Michigan Supreme Court where there's nobody writing a brief or representing the child. Um, wow. and that's just not acceptable to me, but I'm also in a County where our judge pays us to do the appeals as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of it depends too on where you, where you are and where you practice, which is why I've chosen to practice in the particular County where I do. Yeah. And it sounds like the, the work you do is makes an impact. You know, one of the notes in, in the, the conversation with, uh, Deborah Hackworth was that you fiercely represent young victims of sexual abuse. What does that mean to you to have to fiercely, that, that you get to fiercely represent those victims and survivors? You know, for me, it's really coming first full circle from what I wanted to do as a prosecutor when I started my career. Um, I can tell you stories of cases where, I'll tell you this one story because I tell it often and it really kind of shapes, I think about it all the time. I was a prosecutor and this woman, <clears throat> woman's husband had been beating her for years and um, he was in jail. He, you know, had probation violations, probably would have gone to prison. Uh, he was in jail at the time and she chose to pay the rent instead of bonding him out. And he was um, upset with her. So he got somebody else to bond him out. <clears throat> and then he came home. Uh, beat her severely, took one of those pokers that you use for a fire, put it on the stove, heated it up, and stabbed her. Uh, at the time in Georgia, um, if there was no other witness, and the police ended up being called by a neighbor, um, if there's, there was no other witness and she invoked her marital privilege, there was nothing you could do. You had to dismiss the case. I was a felony prosecutor, so he had enough priors to make this a felony as well as the injury that she suffered was bad enough. And so I had talked with her several times. She was a very sweet woman. And, you know, it came time to have a trial and she kept telling me, I'm going to invoke my privilege. I'm going to invoke my privilege. And, and so real I tried quick, what does that mean? That she won't actually go through with it? Exactly. So she was okay. going to invoke her marital privilege and say, because we're married, I'm not testifying against them. 
And she knew because everybody had told her and people were violating the no contact orders and everything else um, that that would cause the case to get dropped. And I tried everything I could to talk that woman out of invoking her marital privilege. And she just said, this is my husband and I love him. And I said, okay. So we went into the, went down to the courtroom and before we did, she had a big bag with her and she took off her flat shoes that she had on and put on a pair of heels. And then she tapped me and she said, where is he going to come out from? And I showed him where she, where he was going to come out from. And she positioned herself in the courtroom so that he could see her first thing when she came out and she put her, her feet up to show him that she had on the heels. And then I had to sit there and dismiss that man's case. And um, I remember her name because I wrote it down, but I refused to look up what happened to her because I have an idea of what did. And I, I always think about that case because, you know, I didn't get the case as the prosecutor for several weeks after it happened. Um, you know, when these things happen to kids, I get appointed as soon as the child gets removed from the home or as soon as the case gets petitioned to the court. Sometimes, you know, contemporaneously with them reporting what happened. I do my best to try to make contact with my, with my clients immediately because I know that victim witness folks from the prosecutor's office or police officers are not always having contact with them in a way that is helping to prepare them for what's going to have to happen to them in the future. And so that's a big part of, of what I do. I want to make initial contact. I want them to have to know that they have someone who they can trust. I want them to know about what the process is going to look like. I want to make sure that they get into counseling immediately. Um, I've gone to preliminary hearings and, you know, I went to one preliminary hearing and uh, my client was ready to testify and we walked out and, you know, the defendant's entire family was standing outside as she was walking into the courtroom and she, the victim witness advocate myself and her grandmother kind of made a cocoon around her to walk her into the courtroom to make sure nobody said anything to her. I've been in a lot of situations where I've seen young ladies have to testify and not have that support. So I make it in those cases in particular, I want to get involved as soon as possible because if somebody had been there and talked with that woman that night um, in a way to make her understand what was going to happen to her in the future, maybe things would have worked out differently for her. Um, And, you know, so that's, I I want to get in as soon as possible and really just help them navigate through the system. Yeah. And we've talked before on the, on the show about, how it takes, you know, a dozen different attempts to leave a relationship quite often or nine points of contact, all these big numbers. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's true, right? We can, we can sit here and wonder why did she go back? Why did this woman want to invoke her marital you know, position? Like what, like why, but, but we just don't know. And, and for those victims that are, that are listening, thinking that you can see yourself in that woman's shoes, you're not, you're not alone. Like that is, that is normal. And so, but, but please, you know, listen to Beth and understand that it, it is not normal to be abused. Please know that, that there's, there are people here to help you. So you've, you've seen, I would imagine a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. How you've had to represent people, you have to prosecute, you've had to maybe defend some bad stuff. How do you go through all of that over the last 12 years and not just mistrust everyone? How do you balance that for you? You know, um, 
I can't tell you all the names now of everyone that I've represented or even who I've done jury trials with, but I, if you give me a, a second or two, I can tell you pretty much everybody's story. Um, I never look at anything as, uh, oh, well, this is just another one of these kind of cases. Everybody is an individual. Everyone comes to you with a different um, background. And, you know, when I was doing criminal defense and prosecution, there were so many layers of people's lives that I just never knew. Um, you know, in Georgia, foster care cases are very closed. They're not open to the public like they are in Michigan. Even when I was the prosecutor, you know, if I was going to the juvenile court, unless I was specifically covering for another hearing, I couldn't sit in any other hearings. Everything was very secretive. Um, and so a lot of times we'd, I didn't know the background of my clients or the victims um, unless we really sat down and had a conversation. You know, so many of the parents now that I deal with when I represent the kids had been in foster care themselves. So now I know that's one of the first questions that I kind of ask the caseworker. I want to know the parent's history. Because uh, the thing about childhood trauma is that it doesn't go away once you turn 18. You know, there's a lot of adults dealing with childhood trauma. Um, but I think just looking at every individual as a person, you know, I never, when I would, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I never called the defendant the defendant. I always tried to use their last name. Um, you know, I wanted to, to personalize it. When, I, when, I, when I'm in court in foster care cases, I say mom and dad because they are these children's mom and dad, you know, um, make it a little more personable for them and make people know that I'm not just sitting it. You're not just a, a case file on my docket. You know, every case is different. Mm -hmm. While there may be some commonalities, every case is different. I think that's helped me not to be jaded. It, it also, I'm an empath, so probably not the best career for that, for this, but, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I do internalize a lot, um, probably more than I should, but, you know, after 12 years, I think I can, can manage it. Yeah. Um, I need a therapist though. I think every, every attorney who does this kind of work should get like free therapy. So I'm pushing <laughs> for that at some point. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Self, self-care is so important and it's, I'm I'm glad that it's talked about more nowadays, but it's still probably difficult to do. Absolutely. It yeah. is. And I don't teach that in law school. Trust me. <laughs> right. What is, do you have any cases that are like extremely inspiring? Do you have a turnaround that you were a part of that you, you know, saved someone prosecuted, did something where you're like, this is, this is a proud moment for me. Well, several of the young ladies and young men, um, cause they are victims too. And I think that's important, obviously to discuss, um, I've represented them for many years. So the criminal case is over. That part is, is completed in the sense that it's completed, but it's not over ever for that, um, survivor. Mm -hmm. And, but I've seen them graduate from high school. I've seen them, you know, go on to college, um, I've seen them do amazing work with their therapists. Um, there's been a couple of them who have chosen me as one of the people that they want to read their trauma narrative to. And so that's, you know, when you do extensive work in, in um, you know, TFCBT is the acronym for the trauma therapy that goes through this entire playbook. At the end, you create that trauma narrative and then you pick trusted people to read it to. So the first time that I got a call from a therapist and said, you're the person who they want to read it to, I mean, I just 
I bawled like a baby <laughs> because, you know, it's like after yeah. all these years and to be at that point of it, which, you know, was, I think, initially what brought me into this realm of, of the criminal justice system in the first place was huge. That's yeah. really where the work is. And these young people do a lot of work to get to be whole. And I've, and I've fortunately seen several of them be able to do that. Yeah, you just saying that as you were describing what that is choked me up. Like, I can't imagine what that's like to see that. That's beautiful. That's amazing. I've got one right now where she struggled, struggled, struggled. But uh, she has told me she wants to go to my college, to Spelman College. And I promise you, I'm going to get that girl (laughs) (laughs) into Spelman College. And I'm going to be there. And, you know, it's... I see it for her. I know that that's part of the future. So, uh-huh. you know, every time something, something silly happens, I'm like, no, you keep your eye on the prize. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's, that's beautiful, Beth. I love that. I love the passion in your voice that you're going, you're going to empower her and help her get there. Like, that's just amazing. Uh, when you were talking about some of the people, some of the, the assailants, you know, I, I think about, how so often the courts just kind of say, well, get some anger management and then you guys can be okay. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case though. I don't think uh, from what I've heard, anger management isn't the answer. Is it? It is so layered. It's so layered. And these are the hardest cases to deal with. I've, I've tried, like I said, I've tried murder cases. Um, I've tried murder cases that also deal with assault. Um, but they are the hardest cases because everybody's afraid of them. People don't want to use the terms. People don't, you know, and this is prosecutors, this is judges, you know, they don't, they're, they're not willing to want to talk about it in the open. And, and by doing so, you're not really helping folks. Um, a lot of the cases that I've dealt with that dealt with these type of cases come out of juvenile court. So the assailant is a juvenile. Wow. Um, a lot of times they've been, victims themselves and it was never dealt with in the proper way um i have a young man right now who is was uh perpetrated on by his brother who was perpetrated on by his older brother i mean it's just it's gone down the line and when the courts aren't ready or able to deal with it then you know we create this idea of people not wanting to come forward because you know, people aren't going to be able to actually address the problem. Um, assailants, there's some who I have, I have had cases of people who are just sexually deranged. I mean, they have these diagnoses and they really do need to be addressed. Um, but people are so afraid to like even read the report or call the experts to even testify during it because they just don't want to even talk about it. Mm. Um, but we need to, I mean, we need to, to because it's it's the only way that you prevent multiple victims. Mm. And that was always my, my thing about, um, you know, really making sure that we did the prep and victim witness work with the victims, um, to make sure that they were getting the resources they needed, because if we re-victimized them by making them testify and didn't help them, then we're also putting an assailant back on the street who also hasn't been helped. And then the cycle just continues to go on and on again. Mm. There's so many layers of the system beyond just um, 
making it a criminal behavior and then punishing people. Because, you know, a lot of times I don't want to try this case. So let me give you a deal where you should have probably been spending 20 years in prison. You're going to do two. And by doing two years in prison, you're going to be out again. And if you're not properly rehabilitated and we don't put a plan in place that helps to rehabilitate you, you're going to perpetrate again. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yes, people need to be punished, but with these kind of crimes in particular, unless you're putting somebody into prison for life, which very rarely happens in these kind of cases, then there has to be an appropriate way, an appropriate plan put in place to try to rehabilitate someone. It's not just throwing them into a cell. You have to actually give them help because there's something broken in them. What I hear you yeah. say. Yeah. And it's not just, uh, you know, sterilizing people like they did very routinely. Even when I first started practicing, like people were still being ordered to be sterilized. <laughs> it's like, wow. you know, we're that far behind in our understanding of, you know, that's not going to take away <laughs> yeah. somebody's proclivities you know, and you're just putting them back in the community with no resources. That was still happening in modern time. Yes. That's wow. Mm -hmm. That's shocking. I never, I would have thought that would have gone away with the, you know, 1920s or something. I don't know, a hundred years ago. Mm. Yeah. There's so much to unpack there. Um, you said something earlier, Beth, about this, the cycle. So often these perpetrators are victims themselves and the cycle just continues. How that, that takes some empathy to see that. And then, and then to want to help takes something too. what can we do? How do we solve that cycle? What do we do? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, obviously, but like what, what's your advice to stopping that cycle? Step one is to be open in teaching children about good touch, bad touch. Um, there's a lot more of that being done now. Um, people need to be more open to it. Parents freak out because they're like, a five-year-old, a six-year-old? Yes, they need to know what good touch, bad touch is. Um, because you know, so many of the cases that we deal with are coming in four or five, six years after this behavior started. Um, and then we do have to reform our criminal justice system to really start addressing when this behavior takes place, uh, you know, how are we rehabilitating people? Because the truth, and, and that goes throughout criminal justice, because the overwhelming majority of people who get charged with serious offenses do not spend life in prison. They get out, they go back to the community. And, you know, we have to have a, an understanding of why these things happen. It's not always the same reason. We have to dismiss the ideas that kids can't talk about it. Um, and in certain communities, it, you know, there's just mistrust of the system completely. Mm -hmm. I have, unfortunately, in these months of COVID, um, just in the past three months, have four cases of children being molested by a parent that have come into care. Um, all of them had been happening prior to COVID, but they came out when, you know, kids are sitting around and they're, they're, they're being locked in the house with their abuser, you know, and they're finally mm. talking about what's happening. And, and it wasn't necessarily because somebody taught them about good touch, bad touch. It was just like, they had gotten into almost unfortunately like a routine of things happening. And in a lot of these cases, they're getting money um, 
they're getting, in one case, I had a young lady who was getting marijuana from her abuser. Um, mm. So putting her in a state where, you know, as a teenager, where she thought he was cool, you know, it was, and it was, you know, a mother's boyfriend. Um, we have to talk about this to let people know that this is not normal behavior. And that means having hard conversations. Yeah. You know, I um, thankfully was never a victim of abuse and that people always find that strange because they think that people who do this work are always victims of abuse. And that's why they're so um, gung ho about being in this realm. For me, it's the exact opposite reason. My home was always my safe place. I never worried, you know, I never went to bed at night being afraid um, are thinking that being at home was not safe for me. And I know so many children who have never been able to have that situation growing up. And that hurts me to my core. Mm. Um, but also my mother talked to me about these kind of things and to know, you know, and I was raised by a single mother and, you know, to know that, you know, if we go over to so-and-so's house you know, if something happens or somebody says something crazy to you or whatever they said, you need to tell me right away. Um, and so it's kids need to be safe in their homes. And that starts with having open discussions about what's happening way too mm. often in our communities. Yeah. That's step one. And, you know, to echo part of what you said too, is to use the real words, right? Is okay. how, how, so I've, I've heard that said, right. You know, if a young young girl will call her genitals her maybe her pocketbook well so-and-so touched my pocketbook and they're like well i don't know what that means mm -hmm. how important is it that you've seen in your practice that we use the the scientifically correct terms for everything that we're talking about you know um i've unfortunately have to have had, have had to watch so many of the you know children's assessment type videos right and one of the things that the, that they're trained on is um use the language that the child uses. So they'll have the, you know, graph of the body and say, well, what do you call this? What do you call this? And they'll write it out. So you can see on, you know, you'll see on the videos when they record it with video, it'll say pocketbook next to this, the, you know, drawing so that the interviewer can remember to use that language. Um, so I think as far as, you know, unfortunately, when it happens, I think that there's been a lot of training on ways to make it uh, work under the child's language. But I personally don't believe that that's how a child should be taught to think about their anatomy. Um, they should be taught to think about, to know about anatomy. I mean, they don't have to know every part because honestly, sometimes that's how we know that a child has been abused because they describe uh what happened when daddy used his pp i mean to be you know <laughs> yeah, yeah you know um and that's how we know that the, the when they describe what happens or what comes out or whatever the case may be we don't have to get that detailed with children necessarily in teaching them but we have to let them know like it is not okay for anybody to do this or touch you here or see these parts it's important for you to take care of them Right. Um, it's important for you to know them. But, you know, I have a lot of cases with siblings who one has been abused and then they start, it, I don't even like to call it perpetrating on another sibling because they don't even know that that's what they're doing, especially kind of at younger ages. But because there's no discussion in regards to, you know, what is and is not proper, 
now we end up with another child being touched inappropriately by a sibling who was, you know, it, it just, we can't have it. We yeah. need to know what our parts are. We need to know, you know, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate at a very early age. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good to know that there are those in the core system that are helping to understand the language of the children and, and serve them. Um, but then also to, for us parents who are doing the work to teach them. So, mm-hmm. so Beth, what can we do? What can we as society, as a community, as listeners of the show, as just humans do to support these victims and survivors in general terms? How can we make this a better place? I think everybody needs to know about childhood trauma. That's number one, because these children are not just showing up at court or, you know, in foster care. They go to school. They're on the same um, dance teams as your kids. They're on the same soccer teams and basketball teams. Um, you know, they get older and they get the, the time to be able to work and they're working with you or working with your, your children and jobs, mm. you know, they're in the world. And a lot of times when people don't recognize that somebody may be responding to them from a trauma, um, response, oh, that person's crazy or she's mean or something's wrong with her or something's wrong with him not even understanding or being able to see that the response that they're giving you is because of trauma. Hmm. You know, I, I have so many instances where I'm in a store and I see, you know, somebody going off on somebody else and I'm just like, Oh, this is just trauma. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. you see people go into these fits of rage and they, they click out and their eyes go a different way and it's just like you have to be able to respond in a way that you understand what you're dealing with and not continue to trigger somebody um so we all need to know about it even if it's not personally impacting our lives and maybe like i said that's um the idea of having empathy and understanding that you know it's just like i don't understand people who you know don't see the seriousness of covid because they haven't had anybody die that's close to them. Unfortunately, I have, but even if I hadn't, <laughs> you know, I would still be able to have empathy for those that did. And so I think it's the yeah. same thing that we have to, we still have to learn about what is happening to young people um, in an appropriate way, because all of this, you know, conspiracy theory stuff that I'm seeing recently in the last couple mm-hmm. of days, there's been people who have just posted sex offenders on Facebook. So they've gone to like, South Haven and here's all the sex offenders in South Haven and here's all and I'm just like no like this is not the point of this <laughs> not helpful <laughs> not helpful at all yeah. um not helpful at all because yeah. people you know I've seen people go on there and be like oh my god that's my you know friend's dad like I was over at their house last week like you know and now you're just tr- it's this is not the way that we address sexual assault in a meaningful way to stop it mm-hmm. it's not we yeah. have to educate ourselves first so, so be trauma-informed exercise empathy have these discussions that's what we can begin to do to maybe change the world a little bit yes yes absolutely. and finally beth what what advice do you have for victims survivors listening that are 
thinking, you know, it, going to court has to be a scary thing. Talking to an attorney has to be a scary thing. What advice can you give to those listening who might be thinking they needed to do something? That's so difficult to, to say because as you've probably seen as a through line out of everything that I'm saying, um, where the system fails is that we do not immediately wrap ourselves around survivors. And it's, there's so many different places where that could be pinpointed to start. You know, is it the same nurse who does an exam? And, you know, I'm never as a prosecutor probably going to have any contact with the same nurse unless the case is going to trial and I need to prep that witness for trial. But if that nurse did something to re-traumatize the victim, um, you know, it's like there's already been a disconnect before it even gets to me. Yeah. And at the same time, if that same nurse was wonderfully helpful and gentle and um, explained things very well to the victim and everything else, and then I come in shuffling a bunch of papers as a prosecutor, like, okay, um, so you got to testify in like 20 minutes for this preliminary hearing. And uh, what's, what's your name again? And what, it, you know, yeah. it's like, there's, we all as a system have to work together in ways where we've never really collaborated before in a meaningful way. Hmm. It needs to be a team from the very beginning. And, you know, there's several sheriff's offices who have now, you know, added victim witness people to their staff who are showing up immediately at the time of an incident taking place. But as I said before, a lot of times with these, with sexual assault victims, it's not reported at, at, right at the time. Yeah. Um, so it starts from the very beginning of when it's reported. And it's hard because unfortunately, a lot of times when it's reported, it's a child to a parent and the parent starts freaking out and says, just keep this between you and I, mm. or let's just keep this in the family. Like we can't have, you know, your stepdad, like go, if he goes to prison, like we're all going to lose our house and everything else. Um, yeah. But as soon as it is reported, there needs to be a team ready to go. And that team is, is a team that, in my mind, at least in most places where I've practiced, doesn't exist yet because it doesn't include everybody that needs to be a part of that team. So that's reform work that we have to do. I'm big on the fact that we have a lot of reform to do. Yeah. Well, let's get to work. Let's get this done. <laughs> this is such important. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. 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 Elizabeth McCree, attorney in Southwest Michigan. Thank you so much for being a part of this episode for the work that you do and uh if there's anything that we can do to help please let listeners know or let us know a basis okay thank you so much and thank you for having this conversation this is um this is important stuff to be discussed and particularly coming from metro atlanta to back home in southwest michigan um the fact that we're having these conversations in this area is big because you know everybody always jokes that we're 10 15 years behind but it's not always so much of a joke so to even have this conversation happening in southwest michigan is a great thing good i'm glad i'm glad to hear that we're making some progress then yeah all right well is there any place you want to send people to to find that help i mean obviously Dacis has our stuff but is there anything any place that you can send listeners to 
Um, well, if you're interested in donating or providing any type of financial support, I know I get a lot of people to ask me about that, and that's great and yeah. wonderful, um, especially if you're able to do that in these COVID times and things of that nature. Um, the Children's Assessment Center, there's uh, one in Berrien County. Um, they do take donations, um, and those donations can be all kind of things, you know, teddy bears for, for kids, um, uh, supplies for them to be able to do the work that they do. So that's, that's always a great program. Um, I am a huge supporter as well of CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates. Um, we need CASA volunteers. So Cass County has a CASA. Berrien County has a CASA that also includes, I believe, St. Joe County now and Van Buren County. Kalamazoo has a very strong CASA. Um, and this is not placement of the kids. You're not taking foster children to your home. You're getting trained on trauma and all those things that I discussed earlier. And then you're assigned one or two children at a time, like sometimes a sibling group. Um, and you just spend time with them once a week. You um, become that trusted person that kind of stays on the case. Because unfortunately, with a lot of these foster care cases, you get several different caseworkers. You may get several different guardian ad litems. But um, I've had kids who've had the same CASA for six and seven years. Wow. So, you know, it's a, a good program to be able to help uh, be a part of that team that I discussed who's, who's there from the beginning and stays with that young person through the end. Um, so I don't know websites offhand, but if you search Berrien County Casa or Cass County Casa, or uh, it may be Southwest Michigan Casa for the Berrien conglomerate now, Kalamazoo Casa, um, they're always looking for volunteers and they need uh, diversity in their, in their volunteers as well. That's yeah. a big thing as well. So those are two groups that really do work on the front lines with children who are um, survivors. Um, as far as adults who are survivors, I think obviously DASIS is, is a wonderful um, program. Um, but they kept reaching out to the sheriff's department. They have a volunteer first response team. I know Barron County does. Mm -hmm. I think Cass County does as well. Uh, the YWCA in Kalamazoo does amazing work. They offer a lot of these classes about trauma-informed um, parenting, understanding, recognizing people with trauma, helping victims of sexual assault. Um, there's a lot of groups in Southwest Michigan who are doing this work and they can yeah. use your money and they can use your time as well. Those volunteer hours are so important. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Beth, once again, thank you so much for being a part of the conversation and doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence 
and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.